0: We are beautiful, we're
1: irrefutable, we are omnipotent, we're militant, resilient, we're autonomous, we are the consequence, we are consciousness, we are the heartbeat of every freedom fighter who came before us, and all will come after Feral, adjective, especially of an animal in a wild state, after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, 1 billion rising. Freedom schools, the maroons, We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation Welcome to Feral to Visions, to a decolonial food. feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing White supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence. In order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over. And today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please... Practice excellent self and community care while listening. To the we can all attain emancipation from oppression, break the chains. From Haiti to Tibet and worldwide, don't forget the resistance in our roots and resilience in our breath, in the blood of our veins, the liberation runs. We are standing on the shoulders of the ancient ones. Welcome. So direct action is a vital intervention into imperialist epistemologies, One of the most famous framings of this intervention for us to start to get the ball rolling is called Theory in the Flesh. Have you heard of that? So I know some of y'all are well aware that it emerged from the life-saving 1981 anthology called This Bridge Called My Back writings by radical women of color. And if you're not familiar with this text, I sincerely encourage you to check it out at your earliest convenience. It really is quite a big deal. And let's see what Aida Hurtado has to say about this watershed moment in publishing on Turtle Island. So in her article, Theory in the Flesh, Towards an indarkened epistemology, not enlightened, no, 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 in darkened. She writes the following, quote, in 1981, a primordial scream of rebellion and claiming of the intellectual and existential space was launched in the groundbreaking book, This Bridge Called My Back, edited by Cherríe Maraga and Gloria Anzaldua. What's up, Claudia? Good to see you. It captured a rolling roar that had been in the making for decades as women of all colors struggled to find a space in the musty and highly policed halls of academia. The writers in this anthology wanted to make their claim in the intellectual landscape of the U.S. on their own terms. They rebelled against the existing paradigms that required the dissociation of their lived experiences in order to claim the label of intellectual, public or otherwise. Instead, they transgressed boundaries of genre, of method, of content, of disciplines theory, they claimed, should not come from written text alone, but from the collective experience of the oppressed, especially that of women of color theory, they continued, is for the purpose of ultimately accomplishing social justice that'll lead to liberation. And again, Urtada was referencing the legendary 1981 anthology, This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. And please feel free to write down the name of this anthology if you're not familiar with it already to scope it out. It is a very, very big deal. So to give you a little bit of context, I even went for my first master's to Texas Women's University's Women's Studies graduate program that's the Principal Anzal Duan program that looks at the paradigm of what in English can get called spiritual activism that's laid out in this anthology. So for so many of us, certainly myself included, getting to college and being able to ground pun intended, in this intervention, was incredibly important. So you see how that helps us moving from abstraction to embodied knowing? Because our consciousness isn't disembodied. As in, what good is any perceived wisdom if we don't have clean drinking water? will be dead quickly. This is happening to many of our loved ones right now, as it has been for some time. So if we want to live, to have the possibility of embodying wisdom, knowing, and clarity, seismic material change needs to be galvanized by us, by our loved ones, by millions of strangers, more so than is already happening right now. And it's super important for me to bring in, actually, the anarchist and the anti-authoritarian history of direct action here, giving credit where due. So centuries of do-it-yourself skill shares, and activism have contributed to this framing that y'all might have heard of, right, through this phrase, direct action gets the goods. I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with that languaging, but to really just kind of back it up for a minute, right, because in the Western, right, Political tradition, right? Anarchism is the paradigm that direct action is most, right, consistently associated with. It's super important to name, right? Direct action isn't usually associated with, say, representative politics. What on earth do I mean by that? Like, say, in the settler colonial elections, right, where people associate politics quite often with trying to hire somebody else to represent right, you as a constituency, No, so that's not what this is about, what we're talking about today, right? This is when we actually do a thing ourselves, right? So it's a much more self-determined stance and approach. It is not passive. And just to back up for a minute, I know some of, right, let's be real, most people within the mainstream, when they hear that languaging of anarchism, they might immediately default to the two most common misconceptions of that political theory and practice. Which are one, this passive, useless idealism, like, oh, these idealistic hippies that are clueless and impractical, on the one hand, or on the other hand, people talking shit and dismissing anarchism by saying, Oh, this must be some kind of violent extremism, like bomb throwing or people that start shit at actions or try to throw water bottles at cops or something like that. Um, and those are two profound misconceptions. If we're talking more specifically about the political theory, right, which is also known as, again, in politics, direct democracy. That's what anarchism is or participatory democracy is actually what anarchism is as a political theory. You can probably tell by its etymology that it's Greek in origins, right? So if people are still, right, in the headspace of thinking that, right, Western Europeans have a monopoly on political theory. If they haven't learned about any of our other traditions throughout all of the rest of the planet, anarchism, frankly, is going to be more likely to support our getting to collective liberation than any other mode of politics within the Western European theoretical tradition. So again, that's if people are still just playing in the little pond, right, or in the puddle that is right only Western European political thinking, which alas in a place like the settler colonial US today is still where most people's heads are, right, until they've done that work to remember alternative paradigms. But again, since that's where the vast majority of people are in their heads today, right, in the settler colonial US, it merits getting into, and so again, giving credit where due, Especially if folks right aren't in that space already, we need to be able to acknowledge it is anarchists and other authoritarians that are really supporting this mode of supporting our material right praxis and getting free and not just again getting caught up in campaigns and elections, right, representative democracy using the term democracy very loosely here, right? Because that's allegedly what people think is going on in the settler colonial US. Uh, so yeah, that's not what this is. This is much more sort of do-it-yourself ethos. And that has been advocated by so many other epic movement elders that we need to have the humility to learn from, right? So we started off as some women of color feminisms. How about as well, right, taking it back right, to the Black Panther Party, one of the best examples, right, of people's liberatory organizing within the past century in the settler colonial U.S. Um, And I also want to invoke, right, Fred Hampton here because yesterday was actually the anniversary of his assassination. So if y'all haven't been, right, sitting with or honoring Fred Hampton's legacy in the past day, now would be a great time for us to pause and to take that seriously. So what's one of his most, right, famous quotes? Specifically, I pulled it up if you want to have a look at my screen to see here, right? Quote, theory's cool, but theory with no practice ain't shit. Could we just pause to see, right, what do y'all think he might have meant by that? Or are you familiar with that phrase? And shout out to Machacha Fanzine for this image in particular. Let's break this down a little bit. So, right. Direct action is also necessary because words can be deceptive, right? So we're going to break down a whole lot of, right, what's dangerous there as it's playing out, right, in so many different, right, movement spaces and movement adjacent spaces today where a whole lot of our loved ones, right, vitality and time and energy is just getting diverted and distracted in shameful ways, right, absolutely. All talk, no action. You can say that again. Um, And so to actually elaborate on, right, this gym that Fred Hampton has gifted us, how about we take it back to the legendary, right, first female chair of the Black Panther Party, Elaine Brown. So I actually wanna play for y'all just a brief excerpt of an interview with her. So this is from Afropunk's Solution Sessions podcast, um, and this episode is called The People's Champ if you wanna check it out at some point. How about we just listen to a brief excerpt of what she's gotta say about this topic? In today's world of online activism, she really wants to encourage us to focus on the difference between words and action. What are you going to do? Trump's in office. Now, we can sit in this corner for five days without stopping and talk about all the horrible things we can say about Trump. But ain't nobody going to do shit Let's sit in this corner and talk about it. In a simple word phrase that Che Guevara coined for me and for us, words are beautiful, actions are supreme. All the shit you talk, Don't mean nothing unless you're out in the street doing something, organizing. She says that the Black Panthers gave up everything, just lived day to day and slept on the floor. They had nothing and put everything they did earn into one pot. So just a little excerpt, right? But again, if y'all would like to learn more from Elaine Brown in general, I sincerely encourage you to scope out the rest of that episode. Uh, And we're going to talk more about, right, different options for us based off of our positionalities in terms of getting in where we fit in, so to speak, in a little bit. So we'll elaborate on that. Um, Although it's important to get into why are so many folks not engaged in direct action today. Well, for one, it's important for us to name alchemizing inertia is no fucking joke, right? Our practice, our paths that we traverse within many of our traditions. It's not performative. It's not to be judged by the clothes that people wear, by the tone of their voice or the way that people talk, by their lifestyle or by their tax bracket. And it's important for me to name right how important this is by actually sharing an anecdote from my own lived experience. So I dropped out of a PhD program in political science in part to practice politics because I was so concerned by the lack of experience in direct action of the professors that were allegedly supposed to be teaching me about power, right? So as a committed lifelong educator, I have a responsibility to keep my mind obscenely nourished so that I can share substantial right agitation with folks that can be supportive of us getting free and so when I realized that my professors in the couple of concentrations in my program didn't actually know what they were theorizing about because of their lack of activist experience or being battle tested so to speak that was a pivotal factor in my decision making process because for those of us who are unequivocally committed to collective liberation, abstract theories about what's going to get us free are insufficient. The stakes are too high for that. So do you all remember how we've been complicating simplistic illusions about objectivity all season long? Well, here, that applies in the sense that Someone who doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about around BIPOC, queer folks, poor folks, whomever getting free, right? If they haven't experimented with those ideas, if they haven't lived them, then that can actually deceive other folks, right? Who are making good faith efforts to understand what actually needs to be done right now in this moment in history. So this is part of why, right, I'm constantly reminding y'all to cherish your minds and not let random influencers or celebrity cultures poison, taint our consciousness because our perception is important. So, for example, have you ever heard oppressed folks talking about education being one of the most important things, right? Goods, assets, so to speak, properties that we could ever have because no one can ever take that from us? It's kind of like that. Because in the absence of legit discernment, we're more likely to get suckered which in this world is super fucking dangerous. And the stakes are a shit ton higher for some of us who don't have the privilege to be clueless. The less of a safety net we've got, the more severe the consequences of a bad call. Claudia sharing, oh Lord, yes. So people don't know about principles anywhere near to the degree that they could if they haven't practiced them right so this is again Natasha sharing yes very dangerous right again why I realized at that critical juncture in my PhD program oh these are not the people that are about to be influencing my intellectual production and gatekeeping and censoring what I'm writing in my words what is impacting my mind and my consciousness and my imagination because I saw the extent to which they were actually getting in the way of of activism that was taking place on campus, in the community, and just really noticing, ooh, they've spent so much more time playing in abstraction than actually caring enough to see whether or not those theories make sense in the world, right? They haven't been battle-tested, right? And so for those of us that care at a deeper level, again, that's absolutely insufficient. It's inadequate, right? And, you know, I would actually want to share, I think that Christianity might have something to do with this for a lot of people in the settler colonial U.S. So I know that many of y'all might know, say, if you are Christian, if you were raised Christian, right, or if you've looked at the impact that Christianity has on people's perception within the settler colonial U.S., right, there is this heaven-focused teleology for a lot of folks Bob Marley called this out in his lyrics and in so many other right conscious Rastafarian lyrics for sure Uh, so if somebody is focused on transcendence in that kind of way, right? It can get in the way of imminence, like doing a thing right now. Claudia sharing hella relate with my school experience. Oh, I'll believe it. So much storytelling that we could get into. If and when the time is right. This is also as you can imagine why I'm naming this with the clarity that I am, because how many of our loved ones are being censored, right, in graduate programs right now, as professors, right now, right? Going up for tenure or professorship when our planets on fire and we can be creating alternative institutions and we don't need to be right subject to that kind of gatekeeping and censorship right now so especially for those of us that do know what we're capable of or at least are open to finding out a little bit better right I perceive those diversions like the academic industrial complex to be horrifically counter-revolutionary. So, insurgent intellectuals such as myself have a responsibility to name this, right? To support our loved ones that are just kind of swirling in that echo chamber right now. Just like people did, right? Like Alexis Pauline Gumbs, right? Naming the toxicity of academia who was supportive for me when I was making that decision to leave, right? Uh, and this is also going to do with, again, taking it back to, right, teleology, right? Orinrobi sharing so powerful, it's justice deferred. What a deft segue to Machiavelli exactly where I was just going, right? So are you all familiar with this Machiavellian idea of, right, the ins? justifying the means. People talk about this all the time when they're engaged in sketchy behavior, right? They use that as a justification, like, oh, I'm just gonna do this sketchy thing now because the end or the impact or the objective is gonna be great, right? But here's the thing. We need to look at what's going on there temporally, right? Like maybe if someone buys into some kind of Western European, right? teleology or linear understanding of time then maybe that could make sense to them but what if there's only now temporally then what the fuck are we creating or embodying or being right now uh woo! Thank you. What's up? Welcome. Sharing like bypassing personal accountability for COVID safety boundaries with the rhetoric of God will take care of us. You can say that again, this shows up in so many different ways right now. So again, I really appreciate your bringing in that example of the way that this kind of Christian teleological fetish for transcendence can be a way of justifying sketchiness in the present, right? And again, for many of us in terms of our ancestral understanding of time, or modes of temporality to invoke the academic jargon, that doesn't even make sense, right? Like, hang on a minute, we're gonna be sketchy now, but it's okay, because something nice might happen later. What if there's never even that later, right? That's not a guarantee. What we do know materially is sometimes folks are being sketchy in the now, right? So I bring this up to share that beliefs about the future and the past can fuck up what we do and don't do right now. Like, for example, have you ever had a talk with someone who's like, I'm not fighting or engaged in organizing right now because we probably won't win? Well, if you ask me that mentality, which is incredibly common, I hear that all the time, right? Um, It's ridiculous. Natasha sharing, so appreciate the time perspective for sure. Ah, And why is that ridiculous? Well, it's horrific and unacceptable, right, how common that faulty thought process is, because let's consider it. We can't even know whether or not we would win if we're not trying, right? There's actually an arrogance in assuming that we're infinitely fucked if we're not putting our all in right now. And so, right, another piece that is so vital to bring in around this uh, is of course, right, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So arguably the most famous book in world history on the topic of education as a practice of liberation. So what's the Brazilian philosopher Paulo Freire say about praxis? here. How about we actually look at a little bit of an excerpt, and y'all are welcome to read along with me if you'd like. So he says, quote, who are better prepared than the oppressed to understand the terrible significance of an oppressive society? Who suffers the effects of oppression more than the oppressed? Who can better understand the necessity of liberation? They'll not gain this liberation by chance, but through the praxis, focus on praxis, of their quest for it, through their recognition of the necessity to fight for it. And this fight... Because of the purpose given to it by the oppressed, will actually constitute an act of loving, opposing the lovelessness which lies at the heart of the oppressor's violence. Lovelessness, even when clothed in false generosity. End quote. So I don't have this fetish for talking about love as some invitation to right activate folks politically. I know a lot of people do, especially in the settler colonial U.S. That's really popular, and we see tremendous folks that I have epic respect for, like Dr. MLK Jr., Professor Cornell West, right, invoking love to invite people to realize that if people are into love, then actualizing justice is the ultimate way to do that. So if that is a deft hook for someone you know, yeah, this is related to love. But more broadly, I bring in this excerpt of Freres because, right, praxis, right, doing the thing, right, direct action was absolutely at the core right, of his understanding, right, of education as a practice of liberation, as in of actually knowing what we're talking about when it comes to liberation. And again, he is the most famous, right, intellectual, arguably, in world history on this topic. So this really merits noticing for us. Because the thing is, Y'all know within this autumn long series, I'm not just generally talking about weeds as terrible things and seeds as great things, right? But we're talking about, again, what can support our perception being more robust. Um, And so, again, direct action is a way that we can see through particular illusions more powerfully than were we to not embody doing a thing and actually on that front I could share just a little bit of a story to ground in that So, a few years back, uh, a few sisters and I were arriving early before an event because we had had volunteered within a group of our loved ones and community to start a fire, and it was raining very hard, and we were outdoors, (laughs) and so have you ever tried making a fire when it's raining pretty hard outdoors, Uh, or out of wet wood? So, to give you an idea, I literally for several minutes had an umbrella on top of the firewood as we were trying to get the fire to take. Um, And it took an incredibly long time, and as someone that has been building fires my entire life, I literally, to the best of my discernment in this moment, didn't actually think that the fire was gonna take. Uh, and actually, after the fact, when we were talking about this experience as we were driving home that evening, my couple of dear sisters were like, oh yeah, we actually didn't think the fire was gonna take either. But you know what? As we were reminiscing, it was revealed that none of us were willing to give up on one another or on our circle. So even though right, it was revealed that none of us thought that this fire was going to take, we kept going. So even with our collective right, conscious perception playing these illusory tricks on us, Perhaps it was a test, because you know what, that fire ended up roaring and raging and performing a tremendous function for us. So apparently, sometimes dedication to one another can take precedent over our beliefs and our ideas and our feelings, as in again, sometimes we're only able to know by doing, we're only able to know what's possible by doing, and knowing is impossible without having, right, that space to experiment, right, in a place, possibly even where our mind is telling us, oh, this is impossible, why bother, that kind of, right, don't even try, we're fucked, right, sometimes moving through, right? Those illusions can really be aided by our dedication to each other. Grace sharing what a beautiful anecdote. Thanks for sharing. And again, y'all know it's important for me to name this because I teach about discernment. I'm right here, right? The illusions are deep in a moment in history like the one that we're in. And so it's been so important for me to reflect upon that experience that even with the three of us with the best of our perception, all three of us for a very long time we're like this isn't happening but we kept at it and you know what that fire was raging by the time the rest of our circle showed up that day and so right also we likely know this often invoked metaphor, right, of flying, for instance, right? A bird's literally never gonna know whether or not it can fly until you jump off the ledge, till you get pushed off the ledge, right? But the thing is, it's true, right? So again, we could, right, and we could look to all other examples like this also, (laughs) whether it's swimming, we can read a book about swimming, diving, you can read a book about diving, you can watch documentaries on it, you can watch lectures on it, but we're not actually gonna know in our body if we're capable of a thing until we actually put ourselves out there. That's just real, right? And so, right, Eva sharing, so different from academia's approach to quote knowing and quote heart. You can say that again, right? Uh, And, you know, there's a little bit of a note on ableism that I do wanna get into later, right? There's no shame if we have to move back in terms of direct action, right? I'm super important for me to name. I have not been on a literal front line this year in 2020. I am still healing from shit that just happened on literal front lines in former years, uh, and so we can even, right, such as in my case, be involved in support time, right, this year or at any other time, but without, say, directly chaining your body to a pipeline's proposed path to be able to shut it down. So we're gonna get into that shortly. Unfortunately, some of the ways that people talk about, right, ableism, right, and direct action can almost be counter-revolutionary in a really weird way that it's important for me to name and I'll bet some of y'all might have noticed, actually. So, again, maybe you might have seen some people, right, not even try to engage in direct action because of some kind of illusions that really have a hold in their imagination. For example, have you ever seen someone talk like, say, capitalism's going to last forever, Like, no other system could work in the U.S. or could be better. And as an aside, lots of folks correctly point out multiple ways that the U.S. isn't even capitalist, right? Whether it's understood using other languaging such as neo-feudalism, like Yanis Varoufakis and a lot of folks have been talking about for years now, or socialism for the rich and for corporations, right? But more broadly, yeah, in most analyses, the U.S. is pretty squarely capitalist. And so... How would somebody know whether or not another option was viable if it wasn't tried, right? And since the beginning of the settler colonial U.S., there hasn't been, right, a substantial systemic endeavor to attempt another mode of social relations or political economy beyond capitalism, We haven't, so we don't actually know whether or not something could take or be better. And as a matter of fact, my father said something similar to me when I was a teenager and discussing the immediate need to transition the planet away from capitalism. He vaguely referenced some imagined anti-capitalist history in the nation-state of India and said, I lived that. It doesn't work. And so I wonder right, if any of the rest of y'all have had similar experiences where somebody seems, right, really captivated in their perception by some idea, yet that is so hopelessly abstract that when we get a little bit more specific in our reflections, we realize, isn't actually a defensible claim, right? I mean, even empiricism, which we've been breaking down all season long, for sure, in the past week, right? Even empiricism would advocate, like, well, you should probably empirically try it out if you want to make such a strong claim, if you want there to be legit, substantial, explanatory power behind the claim that you're making, right? Because the thing is, it's not like we're just talking about, right, stats on a baseball card, right? But if we're talking about embodied, important wisdom, right, skills, et cetera, doing a thing is non-negotiable. Claudia is sharing, oh, my God, yes, my parents who migrated from Nicaragua. Yeah, I, so many of us have that example, which is precisely why I'm bringing it in, right? And this comes up so classically in terms of, right, refutations of, right, advocacy of moving beyond capitalism in particular, um, and that's also just hopelessly ahistorical. Like, capitalism is very new, and no system of political economy is gonna last forever. It's gonna have an end date, right? So the sooner that we can just realistically acknowledge that, the sooner we can have a more substantial dialogue, right, and then move accordingly, right? And so, right, hence, implementation is what's up, right? Lai Beasley sharing, those sorts of claims are almost always a way for people to manage their personal guilt around participating in deeply flawed systems. You can say that again, right? And Hinky sharing, same, my neighbors from Poland, quote, we lived in socialism, it's worse, end quote. Right, it's so common for people to say that in a way that, again, is just deeply anti-intellectual, right? And so we've got to be able to name that kind of, right, stop, think, measure as, quote, quickly as possible to make space to really break down what's going on in those kinds of misconceptions because they're so, right, horrifically pervasive, unfortunately. So yeah, implementation is what's up, and this is one of the reasons why in all Liberation Spring classes, right, we've got that interactive component, like instead of, say, just kind of spinning in what could be potentially stressful material, whether it's about the surveillance state or rape culture or whatever it might be, right, can we do a thing, right, even at an individual level like upping our encryption, right, or before continuing to say scroll about a topic, can we do something about it, say we're reasonably informed, enough, right, to know some moves that we could be making right now, well, can we make those moves at our earliest convenience instead of just consuming more information like capitalism would pressure us to do as dutiful and obedient consumers, right, as if that's how you know, just keep consuming even more. Because the thing is, right, you know, one example of this would be, and a real one in my life right now, I can know using that term loosely, say that it would help me on most fronts to work out more, for instance, but do I know how to get myself to do that, (laughs) right, because if not, then my knowing actually is more shallow than it could be otherwise, right, because the knowing, right, how to implement or how to operationalize, that's also a part of the knowing, right, (laughs) so as y'all have probably noticed here, right, what we're talking about involves active Engagement in creating liberation, not just like Hinky is sharing, consuming information as good consumers, right? This is part of how capitalism has totally fucked with people's understandings of education, right? Especially since academia has been so corporatized. People think that to be a student or a learner is like being a consumer, right? All of these random products, so called information products, being sold online as alleged classes where you never even know someone, where nobody even knows your name, right, where you're literally just a consumer buying a product, it's horrifying how many people have actually been misled and seduced into thinking that has something to do with learning right topically maybe but that's such a shallow concession and co-optation especially if we want to put this in conversation again with Paulo Freire's right education to get free right as a praxis of liberation you don't get that by consuming products as a customer right. And so again, right, capitalism would have us thinking that knowing comes from consumerism. Just consume another book or documentary or class. Then you'll know what you're talking about. Yet in the realm of getting free, not even close, right? Feminist and indigenous epistemologies have taught us so much better than that, right? That it's not about say just encouraging someone else to do something or performing activism online, right? But cutting out the virtue signaling to make space for living virtue, right? Indeed, praxis is indispensable within so many of our ancestral ways of knowing. So moving from that illusory abstraction to theory in the flesh, like cutesy BIPOC radical feminists have been calling for since before many of us were even born, right? So again, here, we really do need to set down so much co-optation, right, of, right, the languaging of, say, activism. So this is not about, say, calling your coaching activism, right, or calling anything activism that's not activism, right, hanky-sharing, plus educational debt binds people to full-time wage labor. You can say that again. So also, again, if we're looking at the material conditions through which something is fronting as something else, Right. Like, for example, capitalist consumerism is fronting as knowing insufficient. Right. Doesn't have to be that way. Right. Orenro be sharing like starting a reparations quote study group rather than doing reparations precisely. Yeah, this would be the kind of right bourgeois response to cops murdering another person, maybe I should order a book on Amazon, maybe I could even have a book club, right? (laughs) So yeah, this is not about consciousness raising in isolation, right? So for example, within the context of Liberation Spring, right, it's important to acknowledge after we've pulled some weeds, like unlearned some diversions and propaganda and planted some seeds of more substantial, right, interventions, learning some movement history and wisdom that could be supportive, right, then we need to spring into liberation, right? And so that's at the heart, right, of the rhythm of praxis that we get into in this space, right? So it is important, again, to pull those weeds, right, and plant seeds before jumping into direct action, because if not, well, we know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So many of the challenges that we're waiting in today have been seeded by super problematic alleged solutions, right? So this is why, right, it's week 10 in the season and we're only talking about direct action now, arguably what could be the most important meta-seed of the whole series, right, but because again, So many of our loved ones with really legit, wonderful intentions wanna jump into right action immediately, but if they haven't done that study, if they haven't done that unlearning of propaganda, then you could end up actually causing way more harm than good, and alas, we're saturated in that, right? So again, we gotta pull those weeds to then even know what the most right substantial direct action is that we could be engaged in, right? Um, And again, taking it back, This is part of why, for example, Dr. Angela Davis encourages people to take seriously every single day, right, perceiving as if we could radically change the world. Because if we're not even perceiving, right, with that mentality, it's much less likely that we're going to follow through on that, right? Like we've talked about a lot earlier this season. So what else actually gets in the way, of massive direct action for one, people having inaccurate theories of change, so to speak, that leads them down futile roads. So although it is problematic in many ways, there is something to be said for Marilyn Fry's imagery in her essay called Oppression, which is one of the most famous essays on oppression in the settler colonial U.S. So, right, she uses this metaphor of a birdcage within that canonical essay, if you're not familiar with it. And so the thing is, if you haven't even tried to fly out of the cage, you might not even know if the cage door is open. So that's another reason why it's so important for us to learn through doing, right? Or if you're not looking very carefully, right, like she reveals within that essay, right, so say we're all birds and we're in a cage, unfortunately, right, maybe you might just see one of the bars of the cage in front of you, but if you're not zooming out to perceive that big picture, you don't see, right, the other right, aspects of the cage, so then you might actually not even think that you're in a cage, right? And if you haven't tried to get out, you're probably way less likely to understand, right, the materiality of these systems and structures and institutions of oppression that we're currently in, right? So this is like, for instance, alas, right? For example, if you've heard, right, Beyonce's song, Grown Woman, right? These lyrics, I'm a grown woman, I can do whatever I want. So in the settler colonial U.S., People most certainly cannot do whatever they want. But if you've never engaged in direct action, you might not know that. Alas, people have all kinds of misunderstandings that can get in the way of them being politically effective, like thinking, if I just make enough money, I'll be good. I'll be able to take care of my loved ones. That's incorrect, though. Would that apply when we run out of clean drinking water, which is happening right now? I don't think so which is why we need to be throwing the fuck down to stop the pollution of our waters right now. So one takeaway that I really hope y'all glean from this is the following. Millions of our loved ones seem to believe that they'll be safe, secure, or okay if they're just rich or attractive enough that someone will pay their bills. Those are immature, counter-revolutionary illusions. And it especially pains my heart to see millions of women and girls and femmes kicking down billions of dollars and lifetimes of effort trying to be seen as more fuckable based off of the presumption that that's their ticket to security. When in actuality, that's materially maybe their ticket to going into debt The sunk cost of a shit ton of time that they could have been educating themselves, building legit community, or throwing down for our earth in a way that could actually support them being more materially secure in the future. So who and what benefits from those misunderstandings that would have us chasing money or desirability over justice and a viable planet and living our ethics in a good way? Well, capitalism... It's one of the most classic examples of someone's mind being monetized. And we know that one of the bedrocks of capitalism, right, is hyper-individualism. So yeah, maybe you can be perceived as fuckable enough that somebody will pay your bills as long as they want to keep fucking you. But is that getting your neighbor fed? Is that getting your grandmother fed? Is that getting the houseless folks in your community housed if they want housing? So that's also a very hyper-individualistic way of understanding security. So for those of us that care enough about collective liberation, right, to see through that, then we've got to acknowledge that is actually inadequate, right? And I know many of our loved ones are so in survival mode that they're just trying to make sure that they've got housing security within the next month and they're not necessarily in a place to be able to be zooming out and visioning more expansively about all of us getting free. So that's actually why it's all the more important For those of us that are in a space to be able to zoom out and do that visioning to follow through and be doing that right what's another reason right why more folks are not engaged in direct action today that we really need to address so that then we can unlearn that right get that obstacle out of the way so we can show up in a way to throw down for the earth more substantially because of right the kind of abstraction that we have been problematizing all season long via metaphor as well, right? So I hope that y'all are familiar with the legendary right, academic article, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, that was published in a journal that I want y'all to know about that my doctoral advisor, Dr. Noilani Gudir kaupua co-founded that's called Decolonization, Indigeneity, Education and Society. So that's the leading academic journal internationally for those of us that are doing work around what it would actually look like to support material decolonization right through educational endeavors like unlearning and remembering and imagining like we do here. And so what do right the authors Dr. Eve Tuck and Professor Wayne Yang have to say here? Right, just to back it up for a moment for folks that are not familiar with this piece. Let's have a little look actually just at a blurb in their abstract. It says quote, The metaphorization of decolonization makes possible a set of evasions, or settler moves to innocence that problematically attempt to reconcile settler guilt and complicity and rescue settler futurity right, like settlers getting to be settlers into the future, into infinity, right. In this article, we analyze multiple settler moves towards innocence in order to forward a, quote, ethic of incommensurability, end quote, that recognizes what's distinct and what's sovereign for projects of decolonization In relation to human and civil rights-based social justice projects, we also point to unsettling themes within transnational and third world decolonizations, abolition, and critical space-place pedagogies, which challenge the coalescence of social justice endeavors, making room for more meaningful political alliances, end quote. So what on earth do they mean by that? So as in, for folks who want to attempt more meaningful potential alliances, direct action is what's up. Not evading responsibility, through that settler move to innocence that Dr. Tuck and Dr. Yang name here. So similarly, right, this is part of why arguably one of the most right legendary quotes of Karl Marx, right, is his 11th thesis on Feuerbach that you can actually see that has been engraved in his tombstone. What's it say? It says, quote, The philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. So y'all know here, right, within Liberation Spring, we're not pretending to be neutral while our precious planet is on fire, right? We are unapologetically out of the closet, caring, giving all of the right fucks, so to speak, about land defense, about water protection, about our collective liberation. And yes, I did actually take flowers to his gravestone the last time I was in London. Uh, It's one of the only white men that I would do that for, but he was actually a big deal and this work is important for us to think about, right? So again, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. And so, right, how is that particularly relevant here? Because the thing is, right, Again, so many of our loved ones don't even necessarily bother to get involved in direct action if they are just stuck interpreting the world, right? Playing an abstraction, whether they're academics, right, or whether they're even business people that are trying to sell those so-called information project or products, rather, without actually right? testing out whether or not anything within their information product that they're selling on a marketplace is actually going to be supportive of collective liberation, right? And this is something that actually, right, has, what a headache and what an embarrassing thing to have to even talk about, right, comes up in this random product that's called Me and White Supremacy that some business person has been selling that has gotten way too much popularity this year that at least in its original form when it came out right online didn't even include activism in it so there's this disproportionate focus on personal feelings at the expense of oh ending the prison industrial complex the military industrial complex a settler colonial court system abolishing ICE and so on and so forth right so why would someone do something, right? Like that horrifically irresponsible of an omission. Well, one, if they're not actually on the ground, right, then maybe they might not realize, right, how horrifically irresponsible talking shit in that kind of way is. Like in this case, right, a business person fronting as an author that doesn't even live in the U.S., but that's marketing a book to a U.S. audience trying to teach people how to get free, Two, right, somebody could engage in that level of fuckery, right, if they don't even know about politics. So they might be less likely to be in a place to even be able to talk about, right, abolishing ICE, right, or the criminal injustice system because they don't actually have any background familiarity in that, right? So if somebody doesn't have any, whether it's lived experience and or training in an area Of course, they might not necessarily know what the fuck they're talking about related to that thing. They might not even realize that that's an omission within their work because they're clueless on that front. But what's especially dangerous here though is when those kinds of misunderstandings get taken seriously in good faith by large audiences of people who are trying to learn about something that they don't yet know about because they're not in a place to necessarily vet what's legit from what isn't. So this is why it's important for us to be learning from people who have skin in the game, who have taken material risks on the ground, whose theories are battle-tested, and not people who are just right theorizing abstractly. And so, this is again legit at the crux of why I left my PhD program. It's literally that important. Um, but unfortunately, right, so many folks are so into that kind of, right, pretentious right, take on theory, too, within academia especially, that they almost look down on application, right, or on operationalizing a theory. Have you ever seen that before, especially with folks that have this um, unfortunate fetish for postmodernist theory and poststructuralist theory, right? It's almost as if, right, activism is beneath them or it's intellectually less fancy. (laughs) This is definitely a thing, right, with some academics, unfortunately, right, that I perceive to be, right, counter-revolutionary. So it's also important for us to address, right, that to be able to see it, right? And how about that piece related to disability justice that I alluded to earlier, right, that I don't see enough people attending to here? So let me know if you've heard a little something like this, right? Folks might be advocating a particular form of direct action, right, that our precious earth vitally needs, like, for example, people materially putting their bodies on the line to stop pipeline construction right now. And then someone, right, that could be temporarily able-bodied is like, hang on a minute, you've got to remember, not everybody can do that. And it's kind of alarming that some of those moves almost front as, right, some kind of appeal to disability justice when people are talking about direct action, right, that aren't actually even speaking from their own lived experience and in a way that can be counter-revolutionary, right? Almost, this happens in a lot of really specific contexts we could talk about historically, some of y'all might have been there and you might know what I'm talking about, right, where people, right, that are not even speaking from their own experience are almost fronting, like, say, they're caring about women of color or disabled folks or undocumented folks or other oppressed folks, right? And yet, in a way that can actually rob us of our agency, right? Such as, for example, engaging in our own risk assessments and deciding our own level of activity or lack thereof accordingly. So when somebody, maybe say a well-intended wannabe ally, right, says something like that, we've got to remember, of course not everybody can be in the streets materially or should be, that's very real, this is important, yet the way that that gets said sometimes can actually serve to dampen everybody's engagement right to or encouragement to engage in their own risk assessments. And then, especially for temporarily able-bodied people, to challenge themselves at a level that actually is a good fit for them. So please be on the lookout for this. And I'm curious to know if y'all have ever seen this before. So again, one of the things that it does is it can invisibilize disabled folks that are throwing the fuck down magnificently and taking risks that so often get ignored by this trite little almost like memeable, tweetable cliche that lacks in nuance and specificity but again something else that's so disturbing about hearing non-disabled folks bring in that language the way that they often do is actually discouraging people that could from taking direct action right folks saying I've seen it right like again if someone is temporarily able bodied and they have right family that could throw down bail money for them they need to be seriously considering putting their bodies on the line to shut down pipelines so when you see people almost performing this kind of like want to be good ally so to speak right pc languaging like let's all remember not everybody can do this it can obscure, yeah, but could you do this? And let's eye on the prize, make sure that we're focusing on that, right? And so, yeah, it's like this strange co-optation in some ways of disability justice languaging in a way that, again, is just one of these ways of so many that sometimes maybe even well-intended allies, want to be allies, right, are overstepping and are sharing in a way that is actually potentially really problematic wish it wasn't the case but I've seen it so many times where then somebody that actually could throw down right or could be challenging themselves more substantially almost sees that speech act as a palliative for them to go back to just hanging out from a place of passivity and it's like but did that even apply to you or what's the function that that route performance is actually serving in so many spaces right thank you sharing like if you're not on the front lines how about share what you are doing to support the uprising that part precisely right so again it can so often Again, in terms of the material function that that speech act performs so often, it can serve to, right, divert attention away from the vital importance of direct action. And in a way that we really need to be much more intentional around, right, focusing energy back on and attention back on, right? Uh, and so, yeah, in that sense, right, on that front, we also just need to be like we always do within the context of liberation spring century in the earth, right? And the earth doesn't give a fuck about romantic rhetoric. It doesn't give a fuck about academics publishing, right? portfolios right and so we do actually need to shut the pipelines down we do actually need to decommission us right imperialist military bases all over the planet um and so whatever we can do to be right focusing on that accordingly is really what's up again and not making excuses inadvertently or otherwise especially if it doesn't directly apply to our own lived experience and the material risk assessment that, right, is relevant for us in the moment, yeah? And Hanky sharing while still centering the necessity of direct action, precisely, right? Um, And this is also, right, super important to get into because, right – Millions of our loved ones are, frankly, more cozy with so-called armchair activism or so-called, right, hashtag activism, right, than actually going out to physically block a pipeline, right, uh, from getting laid down. And the thing is, right, that kind of bravery is heartbreakingly in short supply today and so that's why it's important for me to just name this kind of right intervention and if someone is unwilling or unable of course we can address that but again it's dangerous as fuck for people to not even be challenging themselves in this way and in large part because right in so many spaces especially online sites of performative activism, a lot of folks are way more practiced in virtue signaling, but they don't actually know about practicing virtue. So if you see people who are more likely to materially be engaged in, say, photo shoots or other kinds of image manipulation those are useful red flags to be on the lookout for here right because again right abstraction is not going to get us free this is why for example as i understand it john Trudell consistently invites right folks on turtle islands in the settler colonial us Whenever the language of freedom comes up, whether it's freedom of speech or otherwise, to back it up and to recenter on responsibility. Like I know some of y'all know when we've gotten into some of his addresses and classes in the past. Um, So again, right, for people that have this weird fetish for freedom, whether it's freedom of speech or otherwise, what does John Trudell respond with? Encouraging people to back it up and to focus first on responsibility, right? So not just the freedom to allegedly be apathetic, right, but are we even being responsible inhabitants of our precious earth? Because if not, let's make sure we, right, cover that before we jump to personal freedom right grace reiterating responsibility of thought exactly right like how about you think responsibly and then we can talk about this weird settler fetish for freedom of speech right um and I bring this up again because also the language of right freedom can so often get weaponized today in ways that, right, just get taken for granted or as a given that don't even, right, acknowledge, right, that they're being focused on disproportionately at the expense of all these other principles that we could be taking seriously, like responsibility. It's so weird in the mainstream that some people act almost like responsibility is a bad thing, right, or it's an impediment to them just living some cavalier life of luxury and again that's like very culturally specific for many of us ancestrally that's not attractive it's actually embarrassing and so it's important for us to be able to just name that so then that can be witnessed and seen like we're not all trying to just make money when the planet is on fire that's actually a horrifying distraction and it's frankly a form of false consciousness right um because if we even understood our reality better with more accuracy we would know that we're in danger right now So anyone that knows what's up really needs to be acting accordingly, right? They focus on, quote, freedom, and quote, to harm oppressed people and the earth without any accountability, exactly, right? And direct action and responsibility, precisely, right? Because we need to follow through when what and who we love is being harmed, like the earth, like one another, like ourselves, right? And the thing about that is also something that is, right, a foundation of everything we've been getting into just now. Um, And like we've been problematizing all season long is if people buy into this mythology about neutrality, like I'm just neutral, I'm just apolitical, like I don't get involved in politics, then that can actually serve to perpetuate this counter-revolutionary inaction, right? Because they might think... That, right, they're not involved instead of realizing, no, you're thinking that you're apolitical is actually supporting injustice, right? Hence the title of, right, the documentary about Howard Zinn being called You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. We're on a moving train, right? Or this is like Dr. MLK Jr.'s right intervention sharing... It's not about whether or not you're going to be an extremist when these white liberals were trying to shut him up and discourage him from activism and called him an extremist, which is why MLK Jr. Right, invites us to acknowledge, no, what are you going to be an extremist for? right? It's not about this postmodernist hipster, I'm just so cool because I'm blase and give no fucks, No, you're giving fucks. So what are you giving fucks for? How about giving all of the right fucks based off of whatever the principles are you're embodying, right? You know, even just sitting here right now, right, exhaling carbon, that's not neutral. Nothing is neutral about our existence. So when we can set that lie down, then we can get more clear around what the impact actually is, what the consequences actually are of our lives, whether it's through consumer choices or more broadly with more agency than just being passive capitalist consumers, right? Um, And again, for so many of us, right, our political philosophies, right, don't even have an option for that kind of abstraction, whether it's, right, taking it back to a Hawaiian context, the political philosophy of aloha aina, right, is one rad precedent of so many others that we could look to, right, that's not just some kind of weird esoterica, right, or abstraction that's divorced from our material reality, no, for many of us, our political philosophies are always already about being in responsible right relationship with the earth and with all of life, right? Um, So that is fundamentally what praxis is about, yeah? It's not some pretentious synonym for practice and so we'd be well advised to experiment with it right also like Dr. Leanne Simpson teaches us about in her legendary essay Landis Pedagogy so this is about all we've got time for today For today right of course in closing I want to invite you to get involved in some direct action if you're not already preferably on the ground in your local region Um, if you're curious about right outside of your region rad organizations to scope out I would especially want to encourage you to check out the amazing work of the organization called indigenous action although out of respect for y'all's time we can go ahead and close so if you found this at all supportive I encourage you to share it out with other folks please cite me right and your sources if you want to share any of this material if it's been inspiring and legit the only way that i'm able to do this insurgent intellectual sharing is right through y'all's material support so if you're able to kick down via patreon or paypal that would be rad thank you all so much for coming through and you know i hope to be able to do some more reading and seeding with y'all next freedom is That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadia, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email LiberationSpring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out LiberationSpring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervascio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode and in the meantime let's make our ancestors proud freedom Freedom is ours, yeah. freedom is ours.